Brody set and up yours downstairs extra. I'm Kelly Anakin. I am so sorry it took me so long this week to get around to this. I had a lot of contract work and job interviews that kind of got in the way. But here I am. I'm making it happen. This is very exciting for all of us. So this is the second book that I have kind of gone through as an extra for Up Yours Downstairs. The big difference between this one and the one that I did before, The Royal We, is that I read The Royal We about 4,000 times before I went through it with all of you. And this time we're reading The Prime of Miss Jean Brody by... Why can't I remember her name? This is absurd. I think it starts with an M. What's her name? (laughs) I was going to try to get through this without necessarily editing. Muriel Spark. Okay. So that's a little fun process for you. Muriel Spark is the writer of The Prime of Miss Jean Brody, the novel upon which the film The Prime of Miss Jean Brody is based. And that is the film that Amy and I covered, I think, two weeks ago uh, as part of our Five Maggie Smiths coverage for the podcast. And I don't quite know how this is going to go because I am actually reading this live, so to speak. Um, I've not read the book before. I got really excited about the book when I was kind of doing some basic research as we were covering the film and sort of seeing that the book is, it's very different from the film in that it covers a lot more ground. It goes into the future of all of these characters and there's a little bit of a different distribution amongst the characters. In the film, there's only four girls in Brody's set. In the book, there are six of them. And so I was really fascinated by sort of what I saw in various, I think it was like Wikipedia and different places, um, the differences in the fates of these girls, uh, particularly Sandy Stranger, who is also in the film. I do love there's these great sort of almost Dickensian last names in this, um, I think, myself. Um, Particularly, I think Eunice Gardner, Mary McGregor, and Sandy Stranger have sort of these these very Victorian names that Muriel Spark has given them. But um, Sandy Stranger becomes a Catholic nun, which is really fascinating and explains to a degree why they kind of made much of Catholicism in the movie, even though this wrinkle isn't in there, because I don't know that you get as much satisfaction in the movie of people being sort of upset that Mr. Lloyd is Catholic and, you know, they're all, and they are Episcopalian, by the way, we said that they would be Anglican, but I guess in Scotland that is called Episcopalian. So I'll look into that more. I didn't actually research the etymology there for this particular episode of Brody's set. But I also discovered that the screenplay and the stage play for The Prime of Miss Jean Brody was actually written by a woman. Her name was J. Preston Allen. She was one of the first, you know, really successful female screenwriters back in the day. She also wrote the screenplay for Cabaret. But I still feel like the book by Muriel Spark has this like in-your-face femaleness that is kind of missing from the film. And I don't think that that is anything to do with the script or the text provided by J. Press and Allen. I think it's more so that the entire production team responsible for translating that script 
was male. And because film is such a visual medium, I think that you get a lot more control if you're the director versus being the screenwriter of a particular film. But this book, I mean, I was in love with the prose from the very beginning. And there is just... And I, I can't even explain it. It's this very visceral thing where I'm reading it. And I'm like, whoa, this is this is very much about the female experience created by somebody who has a really full understanding of the female experience. And I absolutely love it. I'm only two chapters in. So we're covering chapters one and two in this particular episode. There's only six chapters. So there's only going to be... I guess, three of these episodes, maybe four, but I am a huge fan of it so far. And I'm not going to go necessarily linearly like we did with the Royal We. Um, Actually, I took some notes and we'll just kind of go through some things that stood out to me in the text. And you all can let me know how this works for you. We can make some changes if we need to. Um... I did love also, because this is such a slim book, and I'm reading the Kindle ebook. Um, so I believe with these first two chapters, you're like 30% of the way through. And it's only like a 170 page book. But it's so slim. So so much of it is in the film. And again, the, the play before it. Um, but the economy of detail and and the density of detail in such a short book is totally crazy. We we get these details about um what it is that Jean Brody is teaching these girls and we get the detail the advantages to the skin of cleansing cream and witch hazel over honest soap and water and the word menarche which of course could not survive the leap from literature to the performing arts in 1962. And um, I'm sorry, 1969? I think it was 1969. So we have six girls who are part of Brody's set. Um, Sandy Stranger, who, and they're all, they're all famous at the Marcia Blaine uh, Academy. They were all famous in the school, which is to say they were held in suspicion and not much liking. What an amazing way to talk about fame. It is incredible to me. And I just, I am in awe, complete awe of Muriel Spark. There are a few writers over the years where you read them and you're like, wow, I should write. Or at least, I guess, in this case, me. But this is just like incredible. I mean, it is just, you know, it reminds me why I love to read. And it's so funny because I I read these two chapters almost a week ago, having every intention of getting this recorded, you know, early in the week. And it has been killing me because <laughs> I don't want to get ahead of the episodes. Um, just, I don't know, it's my own personal my own personal style for this particular thing. But the six girls, Sandy Stranger, she's famous for having small eyes, basically, and, and very good round vowels. Her mother is British, and I guess her father is Scottish. So she has this sort of... Um, patchwork accent and has a different sound than the rest of the girls. So that's what she's famous for. Doesn't seem like much to be famous for, but whatever. Then we have Jenny Gray, who is beautiful and she is an actress and she takes elocution lessons. So we meet the girls initially and they're in the senior school versus in the film where we meet them, they're all in the junior school. But the book jumps 
around in time. And again, just like it's it's like watching a figure skater. It just kind of goes and you never lose sight of where you are or what's happening, but you get so much information in such a short period of time. Then we have Rose Stanley, who's famous for sex. I do not know what this means at this point. I don't know if it means that she is famous for having sex appeal or if she starts having sex early on. Um, but, you know, okay, whatever. Um, so these two girls are um, conflated in the movie. And I can't remember. I think she's named Jenny in the movie. Um, I'm just going to look that up in the background here. But uh, she's the one who sort of has that, uh, you know, that that plan laid out for her by by Miss Brody, that she's going to seduce Mr. Lloyd and have this amazing, you know, sex life and all this stuff. Yeah, Jenny was her name, played by Diane Grayson in the film. Then we come to Monica Douglas. So there is a Monica in the film. I felt like none of this information that we get about the Monica in the book made a leap. She is a prefect. She is very, very good at mathematics. She has a really great head for numbers, but she also has a very bad temper and is famous for having a very red face and nose. And I'm surprised that anybody could be famous for these things. And I'm wondering maybe if there's a slightly different meaning to famous here in this context, but not a big deal. Mary McGregor is pretty much the same as in the film, although at least up until this point, we haven't gotten any information about her, you know, being an orphan um, or, you know, being under the care of this this guy from the bank and that kind of thing. But she's, I think, in fact, is much dumber in the book than she's portrayed in the movie, but she's slow and she's very dim-witted. She's a scapegoat. Everybody just piles on her. And one of the details that we find out about her is that at the age of 23, she dies in a hotel fire, basically just running back and forth on the floor that she's staying at. And I think she was on leave from the Wrens, which is the Women's Royal Naval Service during World War II. And again, we find all this stuff out. We find out that Sandy becomes a nun, which is interesting because I think in these two chapters, you really get a sense of Sandy being somebody who wants to belong to something that's much larger than she is. We get this um, really fascinating device where we really see inside Sandy's head and she's constantly fantasizing about being somewhere else. She fantasizes about being friends with Alan Breck Stewart, who is a character, I mean, the main character in Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. And she imagines herself as like this housewife who's like yelling at her husband for not being around when there's a blown fuse. And she has uh, with Jenny, you know, they're writing this, you know, real life fan fiction, basically, about Miss Jean Brody and her lover who died in Flanders Fields, Hugh Carruthers. So she's got this very active fantasy life. And almost always, it's this situation where, you know, she's trying to insert herself into this, you know, big, big battle or just, you know, some narrative that is bigger than her life is now. And so I do think it's interesting that she, you know, obviously eventually comes to Catholicism and, and sort of fits herself into a narrative there. But and we don't know anything about how that came about. All we know is that she became a nun. She wrote a book called The Transfigure The Transfiguration of the Ordinary, I think. Um so she writes this book that becomes very famous, like literally famous, not just why are your eyes so small? Um, 
<laughs> and that's where we get this great line. You know, this this guy comes to see her and talk about the book, and he wants to know who influenced her when she was younger. And she says there was a Miss Jean Brody in her prime. So Miss Brody is somehow tied up in this this change uh, in Sandy because we do know that most of these girls are members of families who are believers but not regular churchgoers, which always baffles me. I know that this is a thing that exists, but my family was so obsessive about going to church every Sunday. It didn't matter if we were on vacation, if we were at a sleepover. If we were, you know, in any other way outside of our routine, you know, we made sure that we got to mass. So that's always just baffling to me when I hear about this kind of thing. Um, we're not done with the girls. Sorry, I got off on a Sandy tangent. And uh, Eunice Gardner is another one of the girls. So I don't know. I think maybe in the film, Eunice and Monica are kind of conflated. But Eunice is athletic. She's good at gymnastics. She, you know, cuts capers and that's sort of her function as part of Brody's set. And early on, we meet another girl named Joyce Emily, who is sort of an interloper. She's this like rich delinquent and she still wears the uniform from the last girl's school that she was expelled from. And she kind of wants to get in with the girls. And she, I think, has come to Marcia Blaine when they're in the senior school. So, you know, Miss Brody hasn't met her. Miss Brody meets her and then is like, okay, well, we got to go, you know, bye. You're not, you're not in this, Joyce Emily. <laughs> um, and I noticed as I was reading this that there are seven girls, including Joyce Emily. And so I thought perhaps, given that Muriel Spark is very Catholic, and obviously there's going to be this arc where Sandy goes from being you know, an Episcopalian who feels out of place to, you know, kind of coming to the bosom of Mother Church. What if all these girls were representative of one of the seven deadly sins, right? Ooh, numbers. So fun. So I came down on gluttony for Sandy. I don't know. I feel like this this can probably change a lot over the course of the book as I get to know the characters a bit more because there were really only a couple of them where I was like yes absolutely you align with this of the seven deadly sins but um there's a there's a scene where Sandy and Jenny are celebrating her birthday by the way Sandy's birthday is in November um very strong case to be made that Sandy is a Scorpio uh, which I felt even before I had this information, like watching the movie, I'm like, oh man, this is such a Scorpio thing. Like to be like, oh, Miss Jean Brody thinks that I can't be like a spy or a double agent. Fuck you. I'm going to be the biggest spy, the biggest double agent. So Jenny, because she is the beautiful one and, you know, has, you know, these sort of pretensions and she's going to be an actress. I think she's pride. So we're going to say Jenny is pride. Rose being famous for sex, again, in such a way that we don't quite understand what this means. She's clearly lust. Monica is so angry all the time. She's clearly wrath. Mary McGregor is, you know, very slow and dim-witted. So, you know, can't seem to ever get it together. So she's sloth. Eunice was really the hardest one because Eunice seems to be the the healthiest, most well-adjusted one of the group. We see her in the in the future, you know, saying to her husband, oh, when we go back to Edinburgh for the festival, I don't know which festival, if that's like the Edinburgh like theater festival or what the deal is. 
but she's saying, oh, I'd like to find Miss Brody's grave and leave some flowers there. So we know she's married. She and her husband apparently both managed to survive World War II. She has really fond memories of this time in her life. And so I've put her on greed just because, you know, she's constantly sort of performing to get, you know, this sort of positive feedback from everybody. And then Joyce Emily, I've assigned Envy since she's on the outside looking in. Again, this could all change, but I thought this was really very interesting. And there is a reference. Sandy has this vision sort of of, of all of the girls being a body, this sort of Transformers uh, thing where Miss Jean Brody is the head and all the girls form, you know, the arms and legs and torso, which is also really interesting to be included because it's a very Catholic image. Um because the church is, you know, the body of Christ and, you know, Christ is the head. So there's a lot of very deeply Catholic um, imagery and sort of references in here. Um, let's see what else. There's a couple of quotes that I pulled out here. Miss Brody never discussed her affairs with the other members of the staff, but only with those former pupils whom she had trained up in her confidence, which is just so bizarre. And I, again, I understand psychologically where you sort of want these people to be in your thrall. So you sort of seek out people who can't ever be your equal. Um, and, you know, and, and we'll see to what degree any of the other girls sort of ever cop to this being a really unhealthy dynamic. We know that Mary McGregor did not ever sort of understand how maligned she was and how ill used by her, you know, quote unquote friends in this scenario, because she has a memory in, you know, later on in her very short life of these being the happiest days of her life. And she just does not have the critical thinking capacity, apparently, to understand what happened. Um, And one of in one of um, Jean Brody's, you know, sort of monologues that she's giving to her class, she tells them that she wants to tell the story about the Frenchman she met in the train to Biarritz. For those of you who were with us in the latter years of Mr. Selfridge, Biarritz, always a classic, always got an eye out for the Biarritz. Um, we do get, you know, it's not quite verbatim, but it's very close. The scene between Jenny and Sandy, which in the movie is them, you know, putting on a record and, and practicing their tango where they talk about, you know, sexual intercourse and whether Miss Jean Brody has had it and how, you know, you're in your prime and all of that kind of thing. Um, that is in here. That's at Sandy's sort of, you know, birthday celebration and they get to have pineapple and cream, which is delightful and uh, some toffees. And, you know, they're sort of just trying to figure these things out. And um, we get this sense. Sandy talks about she's, she's never bored, but in order to never be bored, she feels she has to live this double life. And, you know, she's like 12 at this point. So, um, again, these are very Scorpio things to do. She reminds me a lot of myself in my younger days. And, um, oh, there's this wonderful sentence in that sort of sequence where, you know, uh, Jenny's mother has been there socializing with Sandy's mother. Sandy's very self-conscious about her English mother who calls everyone darlings instead of calling them dears, which is the much more Edinburgh thing to do in the Scottish vernacular. So she's she's got this feeling where she's caught between two worlds. So maybe that is part of what sort of prompts this double life and this feeling that, you know, it's a necessity for her to have all of these other things going on. Um, but anyway, once Jenny and her mother have left 
and the evening paper arrives, there's this really wonderful line about suddenly a six o'clock feeling in the house. And that is, again, there's just this sort of visceral lived experience throughout this book. And I don't know if you listening have had this experience, but Amy and I would talk all the time when we were first um, together and living together, the feeling of a Sunday where you know you have to go back to, you know, to work or school the next day. And there's this sort of impotence that sets in in the evening. Um, and, you know, it feels like you're just sort of marking time. And I feel that less now, the older that I get, but also that feeling of every day, you know, when you get to sort of six o'clock and you know that the day is winding down and, you know, there are there are different ways to feel about it, but it's this sort of, you know, lingering despair was the impression that I got. Um, we get a little bit of foreshadowing from Miss Jean Brody. She's she's taken in the second chapter. The girls are on a bit of an explore in old Edinburgh, and she's sort of taking them to the seedier parts of town and telling them all of this Edinburgh history, including her personal history, when she first came to Edinburgh and, and where she lived and all of that kind of thing. And, you know, all of the girls are meant to be walking with their heads up high. So Sandy is looking basically at the, the sky and she's, you know, saying, oh, you know, I'm just holding my head up high. And Miss Brody says to her, one day, Sandy, you will go too far. And again, I guess I should have said this at the beginning. I'm assuming that you watched the film or you have a, a knowledge of the film um, and because I'm going to be referring back to it. But, um, you know, if not, surprise, spoilers. But we know that, you know, for, from Jean Brody's perspective, Sandy is going to go too far. And she is going to be instrumental in her betrayal. That's another interesting wrinkle that we get from the adult Eunice speaking to her husband saying, you know, oh, she was dismissed from the school because, you know, one of her special group of students betrayed her, but I never found out which one. So, you know, at this point, we know that it is most likely going to be Sandy unless they made a huge change from the novel to the screen. Um, but I suppose if you're reading the book, like you don't necessarily know who it was or why. Um, and I think, again, structurally, I think this this book is phenomenal. I think that it's just really intelligently and tightly woven together this way. We get some Miss Jean Brody's uh, view on on what subjects are most important. She says, art and religion first, then philosophy, lastly, science. That is the order of the great subjects of life. That's their order of importance. I do not know what I think about this because I think, you know, well, I don't think that there is, I don't think you can put this together in a definitive way. I think if you're a scientist, science is most important. I think if you're an artist, that's most important. If you are deeply religious, that's going to be most important. But I do think, you know, those are all those are all pretty solid in terms of things that are important. So we won't ding Miss Jean Brody too hard um, for, you know, dismissing science with faint praise, you know, because she does include it in the great subjects of life. But She's saying, oh, that's just the least important thing. And this comes up, we get a much a much uh, bigger picture of Miss Lockhart, the science teacher, because the girls, to amuse themselves, will spill ink on their silk blouses and then go down and she's got some chemical compound where it takes the stain out of the silk. And there's there's just this sort of witchy air about her. And she's sort of remote in a way that Jean Brody isn't, at least to the girls in her set, where she has all of this knowledge that she's not sharing. 
I mean, you know, obviously she, she shares the science curriculum and I don't know what her philosophy on teaching is, but Miss Brody has this attitude where education is a drawing out sort of a Montessori view where, you know, you sort of let the pupil lead to a degree versus Mrs. Mackay, who believes in putting in that education is about giving people all this information. And there is a notable change from the novel to the film. We get Miss Brody saying Miss McKay is Miss McKay, I'm sorry, is younger than I am and higher salaried. That is by accident. The best qualifications available at the university in my time were inferior to those open to Miss McKay. That is why she holds the senior position. So in the film, my impression was that Miss McKay was older than Miss Brody and was, you know, this sort of fuddy-duddy, you know, wet blanket versus in the book, she is much more, you know, potentially she's she's got a much more solid grasp of sort of what a, I don't know that you would, I guess a general education should should comprise and, you know, has a better education than Miss Brody. And, and shortly after she says that, um, somebody says something rude about Miss Mackay and, and, it's it's about her appearance and Miss Brody is like, oh, I can't, you know, I can't allow these kind of remarks. It would be disloyal. So she's got this strange thing where it's the rivalry with Miss Mackay and Miss Mackay is trying to, you know, destroy her and, and get her dismissed from Marcia Blaine. But at the same time, she feels this loyalty to her and to the institution. So it's just this weird push pull of Miss Jean Brody. And obviously she's a hypocrite and I'm sure that we're going to get to see more and more of that sort of thing. The other thing that was sort of notable here is that they walk past guys in line for the dole. Um, in Scotland, apparently they're referred to as the idol and in England they're called the unemployed. And we do get, of course, Miss Jean Brody saying, <laughs> saying that in Italy, Mussolini Il Duce has solved the unemployment problem because fascism never met a problem that it could not solve as far as Miss Jean Birdie is concerned. The other detail that I loved about Rose Stanley is that she like loves cars and I think also possibly steam engines, but these sort of like very gendered boyish things she has all of this knowledge about because she's just into them. And then like later when she becomes sexually active, like this sets her in good stead with all of the boys because she like actually knows about this stuff. And I mean, it's not quite like a fake geek girl strategy because I think she is genuinely interested. She has no ulterior motive for knowing this stuff, but like you know, to become famous for sex. She just happens to, you know, have this sort of in with all these guys that, you know, she knows this thing that most girls do not. Um, I think that's all of the big things that I really wanted to hit. Um, I'm going to make a note next time to talk a little bit more about the Lady of Shalott because I know that it's big in this and it's big in Anne of Green Gables. I'm like, what the hell even is that poem? And what is its history? Um, I don't know. And I think this is, you know, maybe this is just me. I've never found the whole King Arthur Camelot thing to be at all attractive. And, you know, I've never, I don't think I've ever listened to the musical Camelot. I've read T.H. White's The Once and Future King. And I was kind of disappointed by it because my intro to that, I was actually shadowing at a high school 
where they were reading it. And they talked about, I think the stancel is what it's called. But like, basically, it was the whole situation where I think Morgana, you know, seduces Arthur and they produce Mordred and that whole thing. And I'm just like, I don't care. You know, I never got into the whole Mist of Avalon thing. I just like, I never found the women to be compelling. And that's usually what, you know, drives me. Um, when I'm I'm interested in a book or or a particular sort of subcult of literature, um, you know, because I'm like Guinevere, like you suck, like you're cheating on King Arthur with Lancelot, and like I guess King Arthur's like sad about it, but like it's just it's just weird, and I just never got into it. And then I think also sort of the American association with the, with the Kennedys and their family being so tragic, it just never really appealed to me. And again, it, that also kind of doesn't make sense because I'm super into personal tragedy um, in fiction. So I have no idea why that's a particular issue. But so we'll get into that next time. I'm really, really excited to read the next couple of chapters because this book is such a pleasure to read. Um, if you're not actually reading it, I would strongly recommend that you do. Or I also have the audible um, audio book that feels very redundant to say, but it is read by Miriam uh, Margulis. Margulis? I don't know. She played the nurse in Romeo plus Juliet, William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet, the Bos Lerman film. And also... Um, she plays, I believe, Professor Sprout in the Harry Potter films. So we'll be seeing her uh, later on. And she also has like a bunch of other like really great like film and stage credits. So I'm going to look into that a little bit more. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm really not giving her her due because she's a very, very accomplished British actress. Um, okay, yeah, I think I think that is the end here. I don't know that I have a cute, clever sign off. It always kind of just comes to me. So, um, you know, we'll be back with the next one. No, Miss Brody. Assassin!